welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week it is a second consecutive win Wednesday, and quarterbacks and left tackles are dropping like flies. Uh, and with me this week to tell us all about stretching and nothing but a jock strap, it's Kyle Posey. <laughs> My expertise right there. That's my specialty. Oscar, what's going on, man? I don't even want to know why that's a specialty. I thought that was just a Gardner <laughs> Minshew thing. Gardner Minshew, did you hear the, the news? This man stretches in nothing but a jockstrap in locker rooms. There's a reason that he's QB1. Man, and, and it's not because he looks like a 70s porn star. I mean, honestly, he looks like the Jim Tomsula's illegitimate son. Uh, and, and now he's the, the quarterback there in Jacksonville. It's a it's a new day with quarterbacks, man. You got Daniel Jones season, you got Gardner Minshew, you got Mason Rudolph for the Steelers. You got Drew Brees, Teddy Two Gloves is getting his time in New Orleans. Uh, it's it's a new look NFL. It is going to be a slop fest if if these quarterbacks keep going down. But hey, man, might be uh, might be great news for the 49ers. Speaking of Gardner Minshew, did you know that he received an adult deal today? Oh, yeah. He was offered to do like uh, basically just lead a workout. And they were going to give him a million dollars if he was like uh, basically on a webcam leading uh, a jockstrap or naked workout, which is, hey, man, get your money. A million? Yes, please. Yeah, you could be like Gronk. Live off the sponsorships and, and you'll be OK. <laughs> but let's get to the show this week because it was man, this game was fun. Sunday was fun. It was the most fun I've had watching a Niner game in a good long time. So we're going to talk about just utter domination in Cincinnati, get you the things that we think. We'll get you the players of the game. And then, of course, we'll hit up the rundown before we preview next week's home opener against the Roethlisberger-less Steelers. But let's get to the domination in Cincinnati because, whoa, it was a clinic at times, especially on the ground. The 49ers put up their finest offensive performance since when? Like 2013? Since all of the years is what I would imagine. It was the most lopsided victory since 2013 when the team was an absolute regular playoff fixture, of course, coming off of their Super Bowl loss. 527 yards was the sixth most in franchise history. 259 rushing yards were the team's fourth most since 1995. The 49ers have not scored over 30 points in their opening two games since 1998. It was so bad that a Cincinnati reporter asked head coach Zach Taylor, and I quote, was there something intangibly wrong with your defense today? <laughs> you, have to, you have to be very, very bad for that to happen. Just, just think about that. Say that out loud one more time, please, because that is ridiculous. Was there something intangibly wrong with your defense? Like, are you fundamentally broken is basically the core <laughs> Did question. Did you guys practice? I know. <laughs> Yeah, it was good, man. It was a fun game. And I think the first thing that I took away, and I tweeted this out on Sunday, but whew, Kyle Shanahan was feeling himself at times. He had some some really fun and interesting play calls. Uh, and, and really, those those play calls fueled the 49ers to a win. Yeah, it was, it was really fun to watch. It was pretty amazing. Everything that he was doing, you could tell that he did not fear what the Bengals offered at all. It was just throwback screens, trick plays, double passes. It was, it was a little bit of everything. And why not? They couldn't stop you. Why wouldn't you do that? 
So let's start with the opening script, because this is, of course, the first 15 plays for an offensive coordinator, or in this case for Kyle Shanahan, are indeed scripted. This is something that Bill Walsh pioneered in the NFL, and now just about every play caller in the NFL does it. And basically, when you look at the 49ers' performance in that opening script, you had a little bit of everything. You had a counter run, you had a play action boot, and then as part of that script, Shanahan hits the Bengals with one of his favorite plays, and that is going to be the leak play. The leak play is something he's been running since his Houston days, really. And it's something that even Bill Walsh had a version of in his early playbooks, uh, or his later playbooks, I should say. Uh, it's probably something he got from his dad, honestly, Kyle did. Um, but that, that play typically is run with a tight end, though. And, and Kittle ran a version of it last year where he fell to the ground and actually pretended like he was like, oh, I'm falling to the ground, and then gets up and ends up call, catching a long pass. And so Kyle Shanahan just changed the play ever so slightly and now ran it with Marquise Goodwin running across the formation, and he's able to spring him for a long touchdown. I mean, it was perfectly set up, perfectly executed, and, and from the get, the 49ers jumped all over the Bengals. Yeah, it was it was a really good play. And, and he like you mentioned, this isn't a new play, but just a wrinkle. And what I found just watching this game was just with, in just talking with that leak concept as well. There were quite a few tendency breakers in this game. So the leak concept is usually a throwback to the tight end. This time it was to Marquise Goodwin, a clearly speedster. A lot of times the 49ers are big on outside runs and inside zone runs. This time we saw a lot of gap scheme runs. So I don't know if if that was by design, I imagine it was to throw off just the next up few upcoming opponents, but there are quite a few tendency breakers, and usually tendency breakers do not have this type of success, but that's what we saw in the offense today or Sunday. You know, over the first two weeks, Kyle Shanahan's opening script has been very good, and, and Bill Walsh always said that you want to, the reason he devised the script and the reason that he created that as, as really a concept that coaches use is because he wanted to win the game in the cool, calm, and collected state of his office. He didn't want to get... He, wasn't, he didn't want to be susceptible to the heat of battle and make kind of rash decisions. And so as a result, he thought to himself, you know what, let me go ahead and win the game when I can go ahead and think, okay, this is how they're going to react. This is what I want to do. This is the setup. And over the first two weeks, the 49ers have done just that. When you compare their offensive rushing EPA or expected points added uh, with their passing EPA or expected points added, you basically in their first 15 plays see a team that is in the upper rightmost part of the NFL quadrant. They're right up there with the Baltimore Ravens, who in the first two weeks have taken the NFL by offensive storm, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, the New England Patriots, and oddly enough, the Oakland Raiders. Uh, but these are teams that are, generally speaking, really, really good offensive teams. And in the opening script, the 49ers are right up there with some of the elite. Yeah, and that tells you what just the mastermind the genius of Kyle Shanahan and and we know that he's very good we know he's good at what he does but I think this year more than ever we're seeing that he has some toys to play with and a quarterback that can execute and they uh they look pretty dangerous yeah he got into a groove early and, and he said in, a, in the post-game press conference that it was mostly because they stayed ahead of the chains they had success on first down they had success on second down and and it was something I think that helped the 49ers throughout the game. But even then, I think the the 49ers, for whatever reason, just had more of their playbook open and in the game plan. You think of other plays that that Shanahan pulled out of the bag. You've got that fake jet sweep to Debo that ultimately then gets thrown to Debo, and he's in space. Uh, and all of a sudden, he's running down the sideline for a couple of uh, for a big game. You've got the the screen to Mostert. Mostert. It seems like the Niners were very much intent on leveraging the screens, leveraging the horizontal stretches against a Cincinnati team that 
had performed pretty well against Seattle uh, and was supposed to be a pretty close game. What I think that Shanahan saw was the speed, the difference in team speed. So the offense, the 49ers, Debo, Moster, Brita, they, he tried to get them in space against some of the Bengals' second-level players who looked like they were running in sand, looked like they were running through water trying to catch up to the 49ers' skill guys, and that was pretty evident. So it was a very good it was a very good game plan in that regard, just to get your best guys in space. So one of the plays where he really caught the Bengals in the perfect play call was on that Mostert screen. It was called at the perfect time because he caught he caught the Bengals in a in a defensive back blitz, a cornerback blitz, really to the same side where he was running that screen. And all of a sudden, you get pressure on that side. You're throwing into that vacated area, which is exactly what you want a screen to do: is to beat the blitz. Because now you've got uh, you've got numbers out on the edge. You've got Weston Richburg who leaks out, runs just one yard deep, so that he doesn't get a penalty. Gets out in front, actually misses his block, uh, and then you've got the wide receivers that are out there on their blocks as well, because the uh, the Bengals are playing cover four behind that that blitz, and so. Ultimately, it was a perfect call. Moster put the Jets on, ends up getting into the uh, into the end zone, and, and there you go. It's one of those things where he just felt it. For whatever reason, he decided to call it and hit him for a big one. Yeah, there was a few plays, not even that screen, where as soon as they snapped the ball, you could just tell, like, yeah, this is going to be a big, big play, or, yeah, this is going to be a score. And I think a lot of that has to do with Cincinnati's inability to adjust to motion, which is seems like the most simple thing that you can do, but for whatever reason, they had no idea what to do with it. So the 49ers ran 70 plays. They, mo- they had pre-snap motion on 50 of them. That is pretty ridiculous. So 71% of the time, they were moving somebody, and a lot of times I was either Kitter, Kittle or Debo. And forty, uh, the Bengals either overreacted or didn't put enough guys on there. Were either down in the box, and that's how they got the numbers advantage. And that was just all she wrote from there. So motion's a big part of Kyle Shanahan's offense, but one thing that's typically not part of his offense is a lot of gap schemes and a lot of counter runs. And that's what you saw with the 49ers in their game plan, especially early on. You saw a lot more linemen moving on counters. Five of their 13 runs in the first half were either power, counter, or some kind of pulling lead. Think of like a pin and pull play where the same side or the play side guard or tackle pulls uh, and ends up getting out in front. The Rams like to run the pin and pull a lot. Uh, And actually, Shanahan ran a ton of pin and pull in the Super Bowl against the New England Patriots. But ultimately, these kinds of plays are not the bread and butter for the 49ers. Usually, you hit them with the outside zone and the inside zone. And yet you had just under 50% of their runs being some kind of a gap scheme where you're getting an extra gap by moving alignment in the run game. This included, of course, the Wilson touchdown in the second quarter. So there was something that Shanahan saw on film that said, you know what, we're going to start gap heavy. And it ended up succeeding for the 49ers on the ground early against Cincinnati. That was something that was very different from what I've seen. Just And I, I've followed Shanahan just dating back to, like you mentioned, the Houston day. So it's been a zone-heavy scheme. And I would probably wager that 80% of his runs, at least, are zone schemes. So to see them come out and run these counters and run these powers, just not used to seeing. I'm not used to watching the 49ers and seeing Lake and Thompson pull. I'm not used to seeing Joe Staley down block. So it was good. It was a, it was a nice change of pace. And like I mentioned, the tendency breakers and the Bengals just weren't expecting it at all. And what those what those gap schemes did was get Breida in a situation where he was one-on-one in the hole with a linebacker or Mostert had an angle on a linebacker. And all they did was outrun everybody to get to the edge. 
And, you know, that's exactly what happened with Wilson on his touchdown in the second quarter. I mean, that was a counter run in the goal line, and it was blocked absolutely beautifully. I mean, you've got George Kittle, who fakes the block on the defensive end, makes the defensive end just hesitate ever so slightly, which gives him enough time for Mike Person to pull around and actually hit him and kick him out on the edge. Then you've got Juice, who comes up, fills the hole, gets on the backer, and now it's Mostert one-on-one in the hole, and he's able to slip right by the tackle. He gets a shoulder. But Mostert's a big dude, and he's fast, doesn't even phase him, doesn't fall over. Uh, and it's most, and it's, I'm sorry, Jeff Wilson touchdown in the second quarter because, of course, everyone knew Jeff Wilson was going to vulture all the touchdowns. I hope you started Matt Breida in fantasy, uh, and then you <laughs> beat yourself up when he didn't get any of the touchdowns. But by the time you get to the second half, that's when the game starts getting a little out of hand, although it wasn't all the way there in the third quarter. Uh, and that's when Shanahan's tendencies begin to take over. And now all of a sudden you see a huge skew towards outside zone and inside zone. And those were the vast majority of the runs in the second half. So real quick, is Shanahan a troll knowing that people big on Brita, big on Mostert? Let me throw in Wilson in the goal line. Let me throw him in there and he's going to eat up these touchdowns. Is that going to be a thing moving forward? Is Wilson the goal line back? What is going on there? So I think that he just basically puts people in positions where he thinks they're going to succeed. When you look at Jeff Wilson, he's a little on the bigger side. I mean, he's six foot, 195 pounds. That's what he's listed at. Chances are that's probably where he is, somewhere in that 200-pound range. He's the big back. You think of Brita, he's 5'9". He's probably pushing like, what, 185 maybe? Um, And so that extra 15 pounds, I think, is where Shanahan's saying, you know what, we need two yards. I need a big dude who goes fast and hits hard. Uh, And I think for him, that's Jeff Wilson. Uh, and so that's really what I think it is. Much like he uses Debo on wide receiver screens, he wants to get him the ball in space because he thinks he runs like a running back. I think he thinks to himself, you know what, Jeff Wilson, he's my big dude. He's the big back, and that's how we're going to use him. And, and that's really all I think it is. No, that's fair enough. And I was just wondering because, like you mentioned, so he is he's the biggest back, but, I mean, he's not a big back, but he runs hard, and that's what really matters. I think most importantly, and we'll get to that in a little bit here, he just runs north and south. Like, he doesn't lose yardage. He doesn't – he's not looking to bounce runs, and I imagine that that type of discipline is something that Shanahan appreciates. Yeah, Mostert's actually about the same size. Mostert is listed at 5'10", 205. So, you know, I I really think that it's it's a matter of that's what he thinks that player does best, and so he wants to to get him those touches. I don't know that – I, I know that he does care about getting the player touchdowns because remember when Kittle last year was trying to get the record, Shanahan was like, oh, he was trying to feed him the ball so that he'd get the single game record for receiving yards. So it's definitely something that Shanahan pays attention to. I just don't think that that was anything that, that I would take away from, from that series. I think it was just, I got, I got a big dude and I need him to go downhill and, and so let's make it happen. Yeah, and it could be the fact that he was fresh as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, the other player that played very well in this game was going to be Jimmy Garoppolo. And Jimmy Garoppolo, of course, bounced back from week one. This was basically a redux of the preseason where his first preseason action, you're thinking to yourself, oh, man, I don't know. This looks a little dicey. But then by the time you get to the, uh, the next game, things seem okay. Uh, and Jimmy Garoppolo did play well, but it was definitely play that was fueled by play action. On the game, he averaged over 11 yards per attempt. But 40% of his plays against the Bengals were play action. And on those plays, he was 10 for 11 for 213 yards and two touchdowns. When there wasn't play action, he was just 7-15 to 15 for 84 yards, a touchdown, and, of course, that really, really ugly pick. So this is one of those things where, I mean, offensive coordinators and play callers should be calling a lot more play action. It helps your quarterback a lot, and Jimmy Garoppolo against the Bengals was a big beneficiary. 
you know that there are people that watch the game and feel like the 49ers were able to be successful on play action because they established the run, baby. But you know this. I know this. It's not the case. All it does is give you defined reads, and that's what happened in the passing game. Linebackers get sucked up, especially the slower linebackers like the Bengals have. And all that did was just create defined windows down the field over the intermediate part and just gave the 49ers space to work. And, uh, yeah, I think that Jimmy Garoppolo did a good job of hanging in there under pressure as well. And, you know, his knee really does look good. You had a couple plays where he avoided – uh, number 96 on the boot in the first quarter. He, he showed some good mobility running for the first down on the very next play. Um, and at one point, Kyle Shanahan actually ran a true zone read with Jimmy Garoppolo. Like he was reading the end. He could have kept the ball uh, and it would have been very surprising if he did. But that was absolutely an option and something they put out on film. So, I mean, Jimmy's knee looks pretty good. It looks really, really good. So that's definitely a positive development looking at, at Jimmy Garoppolo play. And just parting these Garoppolo throws, so he threw the ball 25 times. If you take away two of the throwaways, 20 of those throws, he was on target to receivers. And it doesn't mean that's not about completions because he had an incompletion where he hit Debo right in the hands and he drops it. He has other throws where it might be a little off target, but the receivers made the kick. So it's just it's just good to see him get more and more comfortable. And that's going to be the thing. You just want to see him continue to trend in the right way. And I think that's what we're seeing here. He's starting to trust the knee as well. Yeah, I mean, he was he was really, really good in the intermediate area of the field. That that pass where you're talking about where he hit Debo, that's another, you know, that's another drink that Jimmy Garoppolo robbed you of because Debo on that slant would have had a first down. Uh, and actually, Jimmy Garoppolo didn't rob you of that. Debo Samuel robbed you of that. Um, he's robbing you of drinks, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he's robbing you of one of the drinking game rules in this. We will not stand for it. Debo, catch the damn ball. That's all I will say. Um, let's talk about the interception because the interception was bad and it came on probably Garoppolo's worst two back-to-back plays in, in the game against the Bengals. Uh, so what did you see on that interception uh, and how bad was it? So it was very bad. There's no way around that. I think he would say the same thing. So they have a concept here and Richie James is running a corner route. So he's running a seven route. Garoppolo feels like William Jackson, the cornerback, is going to sit on a route, which the outside receiver runs. I don't remember by um, just off the top of my head who that receiver was, but he just feels like the cornerback is going to sit. Cornerback is just reading the quarterback, reading Garoppolo, doesn't sit, lofts it up. The The biggest problem I have here was Garoppolo made up his mind as soon as the huddle broke where he was going with the football. Because if I remember correctly, he had Marquise Goodwin open underneath on like a a curl route to the right side where if he's scanning the field and if he's reading, going through his progressions like he should, he drops the ball down, five, six-yard gain, lives for another down. Instead, makes up his mind, throws up a, a, a lofty, almost Hail Mary type, and William Jackson camps under it and is easily able to make the play. Yeah, so, so you've got the Richie James who's running the, the over route, right? So he's not running that seven. He's actually coming from across the field. Uh, and, and it's a cover three look. And so what ends up happening is you're exactly right. They should have some, some conflict on the sideline with another wide receiver, but the, run, the cornerback on that side just makes a great play on the ball, and he sinks. And he peels off of his responsibility because he's got a linebacker there on the edge. Uh, and, and once that linebacker takes the, the player who's running that, that, that little hitch, which I think you're right, is Goodwin, uh, all of a sudden he's just free to clear and drop and get that ball. Um, and I, you know, I worried about it because it didn't look like Jimmy Garoppolo was all there for those two back-to-back plays. Of course, the play right before that was a no play, but it's the play where he got the snap count wrong. Like, when have you ever seen a quarterback get the snap count wrong? Nobody else moved. 
Yeah, because he got it wrong. He he clearly called something <laughs> not one in the huddle, and then he moved yeah. on one. The the play right before that, he actually got dumped on his head a little bit, and it didn't look too bad. But um, you, you know, I wonder if like maybe he got a hit to the head or something. But it was just a really weird two play stretch. And and you're absolutely right. He made up his mind. He threw it. Didn't see the sinking corner. And in all three of those really bad interceptions, whether it be in the preseason uh, or whether it be in week one or now in week two, it's always the outside corner that he doesn't really pay attention to. That's kind of doing something out there and ends up either breaking on the ball forward or sinking back. This one wasn't as bad, I think, as some of the other ones where he just doesn't see the corner and and he breaks downhill. But it was still pretty bad. His turnover worthy plays have definitely gone up this year, at least the ones that have gotten intercepted. Those are up to, I think, over 3%. It's like 3.6% or so on the year, um, which isn't horrible. Right now, it's like middle of the pack in the NFL, but it's still definitely something to monitor because that's something he's historically been good at. And if that changes, um, then you know that, that could mean that overall, um, he, he loses some of his, his efficiency as the season goes on. Yeah, well, I'm wondering if this is going to be a thing, if this is who he is, if he's just going to miss a play every game and it costs the team. Luckily, the defense was able to bail him out, but just something to keep an eye on for it if, if it's going to be the, that one dumbass throw game, for lack of better words. All right, give me one of the next things that you think. So I really really liked what we saw from Kittle and Juice in this game and and the running backs in general. Kittle just dominated without even touching the ball. Um, He was really able to make a difference as far as a run blocker goes. If you guys follow Brandon Thorne, he put out a few clips of Kittle. I just, some of the things that I charted, I chart something called plus box where he literally, a player will drive you out of the hole. Kittle had three of those. Juice had three of those. And as far as just the running backs go, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, their decisiveness was really impressive. So they forced 10 missed tackles combined, which that's great, obviously. But I think they really did a good job of not bouncing runs where they had a, an opportunity to. Like a couple of Wilson's carries down on the goal line, he could have easily bounced a run, but he kept it inside, kept it north and south, and just gained more yards. So that was really good to see from just – the running backs in general, the motions really helped. Like I mentioned earlier, just the success rate when Deuce is on the field, they're just that much better when he's on the field. So 21 personnel, they had 66% success rate, 22 personnel, 62% success rate. They were able to basically impose their will on the Bengals when Deuce was in the game. And I, uh, I that was really fun to see just them. The Bengals know that the 49ers are going to run the ball and not be able to do anything about it. And I'm really happy that the 49ers spent so much money on the running back position, <laughs> you know, because, I mean, you look at Raheem Mostert, he's got to be making, what, four or five million dollars. You look at Matt Breida, he's got to be making at least six million. Uh, I mean, he's, you know, first round generational talent right there. And Jeff Wilson, I mean, <laughs> another first round running back. It's, it's pretty wild. It's, it, you would think based on their performance, you would absolutely understand why the Niners are top five uh, in cap percentage spent on running back. Yeah, I mean, those are the three backs. They went up, traded up to get some running backs in the first round, and now they're um, reaping the benefits for that. And sarcasm fun. Uh, but, you know, when, when you look at the, the defensive side of the ball, I think the, the big question that you have coming out of this game is how the defense has turned around so quickly. And, of course, all, you, you've got the pass rush, which is really, really, really important. But their coverage has also improved. After week two, the Niners are now top three in PFF coverage grade as a team. And that's incredibly surprising considering they were dead last by a wide margin last year. So what the hell goes into that? 
One, really, it, it's really being fooled by two players. That's Akella Witherspoon and Quan Alexander. You've got a lot of other players like Mark Nazacha, who are, or Mark Germany, as you would like to call him, um, who are, <laughs> they have positive coverage grades, but ultimately, those are really limited snaps. It's like 10, 12, 15 snaps. But Quan Alexander and Akella Witherspoon are the players that have really, really bounced back um, or continued their solid coverage play. You look at the forced incompletions that both Akello and Quan have, especially in the game. You look at a series at the end of the second quarter where Quan Alexander is able to deflect a pass when he's dropping into a zone, into that hook zone. And, and then you've got another pass where he is able to break on the ball, go downhill, and actually force the incompletion by ma- making a hit out there uh, in, in the flat. And then you've got Akello Witherspoon who is able to knock the pass away on a swirl route. These are forced incompletions. And these forced incompletions were just something that were not there for Akella Witherspoon or really for the linebackers over the course of last season. When you look at Akella Witherspoon's uh, just pass breakups, you look last year and he had one pass breakup all year per pro football focus. And of course, that's not where you get an overthrow. It's, of course, where you have actual hand on ball. Um, and so those numbers are going to be relatively low, even when you're a really, really good corner. But still, only having one is, is not that great. You look at 2017, his rookie year where he was a lot better. He had four in just two games in 2019. Akella Witherspoon has three pass breakups. And that, of course, isn't just because he's not being targeted. Like, he's being targeted plenty. You look at his targets over the course of the first two weeks, and he's been targeted six times each game. Uh, and he's got two pass breakups uh, in week one and one in week two. And, and so you look at that rate over the course of a year, that's 96 targets. He's not been targeted more than 68 times uh, in a given year. And, of course, that was last year in 2018. So I think Akella Witherspoon is someone who is playing well. Um, he is bouncing back in the way that we hoped that he would take the next step last year. And, you know, it makes a little bit of sense because what we know about performance of individual corners is that that's not necessarily stable year to year. Um, and this is hopefully the bounce back. And if anything, uh, this is hopefully the Akella Witherspoon that we see over the course of the rest of the year and in seasons moving forward. I'm glad you brought that point up as far as just charting cornerbacks or just cornerback statistics in general. That is not consistent. And that's why people like Richard Sherman and Patrick Peterson are are the elites of the NFL because they can consistently perform at a very successful level. Whereas 80, 90 percent of cornerbacks, they're they're volatile. They're going to be up. They're going to be down from year to year. So that's a good point. And I think we're just seeing a more confident version of the, the most confident version that we've seen of Witherspoon. And I'm sure that uh, Joe Woods has a lot to do with this as well. Well, I think you, you have seen an uptick in uh, the way that the 49ers are playing different coverages. And the, I want there the coverages this game were very much skewed towards cover four only because the Bengals were passing so much late in the game that the Niners were in a lot more split safety looks. But you are seeing more varied coverages from Robert Sala this year. And I do think that that's helping Akella Witherspoon. Uh, and, and so I think ultimately, when, when you think of, of grades and how these players grade, it's not just the pass rush that's helping Akella Witherspoon get better. That's probably helped him get a couple of interceptions, absolutely. And those look good on the stat sheet. But Akella Witherspoon is actually playing better as a cornerback. He's winning reps, doing things that he can control that are not the function of the pass rush where he is getting hands on ball and he's forcing incompletions. He's staying tighter to his, to his wide receivers. And that's not because Joey Bosa, I'm sorry, Nick Bosa is on the team. That's because Akella Witherspoon is, being, is playing better football. Um, and Quan Alexander, similarly, I think he came to the 49ers and, and the rap was like, well, if you're going to pay for a linebacker, 
at least he better do well in coverage. And that's exactly what Quan Alexander has been doing because his interception was uh, was a whole hell of a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, he was. He he basically ran the route for the time. You could you would have no idea who the receiver was on that play. He did a great job at the line of scrimmage, just turned and run with the with the tight end and took the ball away. And I think that the speed underneath is the biggest difference. Just going from Elijah Lee to Quan Alexander, that pass breakup where he had in the second quarter, where he is just sitting underneath, reads Dalton's eyes, goes about three or four yards and breaks while the ball's in the air and is able to break up the pass. That play doesn't get made on this team last year. And there was a couple other plays where, like if there was a five-yard gain where Quan Alexander is on the other side of the field, it's a sweep, it's a toss to the to the wide side. Oh, yeah, Alexander chases it down. He runs it down, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a really impressive play that I think that, that doesn't happen last year. And even on like the big gains, Alexander's chasing plays down. They're, so they're not stops, but he's preventing even bigger plays. And I think his speed is really, really showing up. Um, one thing that I want to talk about is just like the roles defined in the secondary. And I think that has a lot to do with the success as well. So we're seeing a lot of Witherspoon at the line of scrimmage, Witherspoon having – so they're still running zone – like you mentioned, they're still in these cover four, cover three looks, but it's more man to man principles. So we were seeing that he has isolation routes and he is trusting what he sees. He's confident in his abilities and he's breaking on these routes before or at the same time as a receiver. And he's so long and athletic that he's able to get these pass breakups. So really liking Witherspoon be the quote unquote dominant corner. And we're seeing Sherman on the other side play a lot more off, play some softer zone looks, but it's working. It's it's working out perfectly. They're able to essentially leave Witherspoon on an island more often than not. And he is really taken to the task. So I'm uh yeah, he he's playing like one of the best corners in the league early on. I mean, we're talking about two weeks and not over 20 targets yet, but his success rate is 70%, which is the eighth best in the NFL right now. And his yards per pass, yards per attempt, I think it is, is 3.2, I think, which is the fifth most or fifth best in the NFL. So, yeah, he's balling, man. There's really nowhere else to put it. Yeah, and overall, I still think it's early for the defense. There's still a lot of time. And with the amount of actual full-time starter starting play that happened in the preseason, you know, a lot can happen in October, November, and December. And Defense, of course, is less stable than offense because there's a lot fewer things that you control. But at least early on, the 49ers are proving that as a unit, they're able to play some successful football. You look at Akella Witherspoon, who's actually controlling some outcomes in a very, very positive way. And then you've got Nick Bosa, who's got the second highest pass rushing productivity after two weeks for players with at least 40 pass rushes. He's second to just Miles Garrett. And of course, the 49ers have the second lowest blitz rate in the NFL at just 14 0.1%. So they're not only able to get to the quarterback, but even if they can't, Akella Witherspoon is playing better and Quan Alexander is playing better underneath as well. But neither one of those players is actually my player of the game. My player of the game goes to number 98, sometimes number 90, and that's good old Ronald Blair. Um, <laughs> it confuses the hell out of me. I literally have to check myself and be like, wait, Earl Mitchell's still on the team? This is confusing. Because uh, that little, the middle line gets tucked under his jersey, and I get real confused. But on 23 pass rushing snaps, he had a sack uh, and two stops, and he also fla- and he had a sack and two pressures. He, but he also flashed in the run game with three defensive stops. So overall, I thought Ronald Blair played one hell of a game, um, and, and I'm glad that he was able to have some success against the Bengals because, well, the starters uh, needed some rest in a blowout. 
that was great, man. That was awesome to see him get after it like that. So the thing that I chart is just wins. Just do you beat your man? And Blair had the most wins out of anybody. He had six. So we've come to expect Bosa and Buckner to do this. Buckner had four wins. Bosa had four wins. But for Blair to have six, and you want to, you want these guys to take advantage of the lesser talent, lesser tackles, tackles that are second and third string. I feel like everybody thinks that, you know, J.J. Watt and Aaron Donald are picking on Pro Bowl starters. They're not. Nope. They are beating on lesser players, and that's what that's what you're supposed to do. And going back to the point of it's early for the defense, it absolutely is. But I think what we want to see is a, a sign of a good defense is to just show your talent and be able to out-talent offenses, and that's exactly what they've done. All right, so who's your player of the game? I am going with Quan Alexander. I mean, Ronald Blair was probably the best player on the field. But I'm going with Quan Alexander just because, like I mentioned, his second quarter, man, he he made a handful of plays that, like I mentioned, most linebackers on the on the 49ers don't make last year. So I think he really did a good job with his playmaking, his energy. He set the tone. He had I had him down for three and a half stops. He's targeted four times. Two pass breakups, interception, gave up one completion, but whatever. But just his hustle, I really appreciated the way he played, man. He was, uh, he looks very, very good. And I know it's only one game, essentially, is what he's played. But that was a very good game from him. All right. Well, that wraps our coverage of the Bengals game. It was a hell of a game to watch, man. I had a ton of fun. Um, it's been, and, and of course, we got to rule number eight of the drinking game. Jimmy Garoppolo threw three touchdowns, and we chugged our beer. So I was on a plane visiting my brother in the Bay Area this weekend. I, w- I got off the plane, promptly turned on Sunday ticket on my phone, and raced home. And as soon as I got home, I chugged a beer. Uh, you know, because if I'm going to write the rules, uh, I got to follow them is all I'm saying. Rules are rules, man. That's right. Rules are made to be drunk. Uh, <laughs> so let's get to the rundown, uh, the midweek stories. And we'll talk, of course, about the biggest story to come out of the game. And that is the injury to one Mr. Joe Staley. But before we do that, let's take just a brief break to hear from our sponsors. It was a really fun win in Cincinnati, but the team did not emerge unscathed. Of course, Joe Staley broke his non-weight-bearing bone in his leg. Uh, I believe that's the tibia. Uh, and, you know, you say it's the non-weight-bearing one, but the dude still got a fracture in his leg. So weight-bearing or not, something that is not supposed to be broken is officially broken. Uh, and really, when you think of a player the 49ers could basically not do without, the only two that come to mind are Jimmy Garoppolo and one of the two tackles, whether it be McGlinchey or Staley, because tackles are at a premium in the NFL. And the pass protection so far has been incredible. I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo's only had like, what, two hits. He's got six pressures, I think, on the year, which is like second lowest in the NFL uh, behind just the Dallas Cowboys. And, and the pass protection has been amazing. And in large part, it's because of Joe Staley and, and McGlinchey. Yeah, it really has. And I think a lot of that is due to scheme as well, just the play actions helping him out. And they've been when they take their shots, they are leaving tight ends as well. But man, Staley, he played his butt off. I thought he played very well on Sunday and they are going to miss him. Yeah, so he actually broke his fibula because I cannot read my own notes. Uh, So the fibula (laughs) is the non weight bearing part of the leg, but still sucks. So now what do you do? Because Joe Staley's out for they say six to eight weeks. Um, but ultimately, I think it's better not to rush him. So I think you have to assume eight, maybe nine weeks uh, or eight weeks if you include the buy that's coming up here after the Steelers. But I mean, short term IR or not, now you basically have Justin School, who is a player who needs a lot of development. And the team seems committed to at least try him out for one week. And 
it's probably not a bad idea to try them out for one week because then if you do need to make a move, you can do it during the buy since they have an early buy this year. But the rap on Justin School is that he didn't play well this preseason. His best game at left tackle uh, was the final preseason game against the Chargers. Um, and, and he didn't really acquit himself super well the previous two games in the preseason that he played. Played 19 snaps against the Bengals in his first NFL action. But only one of those snaps was in pass protection. By that point, the game was well in hand. And he basically has a lot of run snaps, uh, which he did fine with. Um, but ultimately, he wasn't really tested because uh, it wasn't time to test the offense at that time. So that's the option that the team is going to run with. And uh, I think that, you know, if you're a Niners fan, you should be concerned. I would be very concerned if I was a 49ers fan. And yeah, that's the thing about. So first of all, I do think it is a great idea that he, if you're going to give him a shot, give him a shot against the Steelers, go into the bye week with your and assess your options and go from there. But only playing one pass blocking snap in a game, there's no way to judge school off what he did. He's going to face a test. That's for sure. You have to imagine the Steelers are going to put him in as many uncomfortable situations as they can, because if they watched him in the preseason or in college, they know that he is far from a NFL ready tackle at this point. And that's not that's not a knock against him. There are a lot of guys that aren't NFL NFL ready tackles. So they took him in the sixth round, expecting that they probably get a year or so on the practice squad and go from there. But we're going to have to accelerate it and speed them up and get them up to speed real quick, man. Would you go after Trent Williams? Um, no, just because it's prisoner of the moment. Stay, what, so you go after Trent Williams, give up draft capital. Staley recovers sooner than you expected. Now what? Well, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't retire, even if he doesn't recover sooner than expected, even if it takes the full eight weeks, then what? Then Trent Williams yeah. is sitting on the bench. Uh, I don't think that makes a lot of sense to give up what's probably going to be a high round pick um, just for, you know, a, a seven or eight game rental. I don't think that that's necessarily smart. But then you've got other options like Sam Young, who is a whole lot of average and he's been a, a better pass blocker than run blocker. But that's the player that I think the Niners may have in the wings in case this doesn't work out with school this weekend. The person I'd probably go after is someone like Ryan Schrader. He the Niners don't seem too interested in Schrader, but he has experience with Shanahan in Atlanta. He played relatively well for a couple of years, especially in that 2016-2017 area with Shanahan. So he's shown that he can perform at a high level in this scheme. He's just been trailing off as he kind of gets up in the age and in his career now. And so I want to take a chance on someone. That's probably someone I'm going to go after. Um, you look at like the Matt Khalils of the world. And I mean, if, I guess if the Niners really hate Jimmy Garoppolo, they're going to go ahead and put Matt Khalil out and, and you know protect him in air quotes. But that there's not a lot of good options out there. And so it might be a schooler for me, Ryan Schrader. Yeah, and Schrader's a name that I threw out on the website a couple days ago just because of familiarity. The problem is he's played right tackle, I, I think that it was. So what do you do at left tackle then? Like, do you move McGlinch? He's already mentioned that he doesn't want to create two spots by moving yeah. a player. So, And that's the right um, move. I mean, he's absolutely right. You don't want to get worse at two spots. Um, just yeah. kind of replace one. So I, I do absolutely agree there. I, I just... It's really rough. This was the one thing that I think puts a sour note on that whole game. And ultimately, I hope that the Niners are able to overcome and, and get some wins these eight weeks. But this is this is the one thing you didn't want to have happen. Um, that or D Ford's knee tendonitis continuing to flare up and maybe keep him out of some games. Um, do you think this was not due diligence by the Niners? Or do you think that this is something that they kind of expected and knew about? And now they're just kind of dealing with a player that's had injuries, which is injury issues his entire career. Yeah, I was going to say, this is nothing new. If you follow D Ford at all, he is, I mean, he's always on the injury report. He's missed plenty of time. He's missed, shoot, hasn't he missed 
basically an entire season because of this. So, I mean, it's nothing new. They took a risk. They took a gamble. And Shanahan said that they're going to be very cautious with him. He's not going to practice for the rest of the week. We're going to, they're going to see if he, uh, he can suit up Sunday. So I imagine this will be a situation where he is game time decision for the next couple of weeks. And if he gets banged up, good night. But that was a, the blowout against the Bengals was probably great for him because he didn't have to, you know, push it or play. So that, that is good. But man, he, uh, they, they need him because they, they don't blitz and they're going to need to get pressure with four. And it is naive to think that Ronald Blair is going to be able to have the type of success that he did against third string tackles. You know, if it were me, I think it makes sense to deactivate D Ford for this week, because that way you give him two weeks. It's going to be a long back half of the season with the bye week being so early. And with a player like Mason Rudolph, you're, you're probably not going to need to get too much pressure on him. We're going to talk about him in a minute in order to rattle him because he's so young in his career and he didn't do well with pressure um, in the game against Seattle. And so I think you give him two weeks to heal up. The, the 49ers do have an out in D Ford's contract where his salary doesn't become fully guaranteed until in the 2020 year uh, until April 1st. So Prague Marate, you know, he wrote in some some basically outs in the contract. And while ultimately you think, yeah, it would still result in a little bit of, of lost money and you would hate to lose the draft capital, a second round pick in order to do so. If this knee thing becomes a real issue, the Niners do have an out because they are very, very smart when they write their contract. So hopefully he gets healthy and gets back to terrorizing quarterbacks as he did in week one, not so much in week two. Next story in the rundown, Matt Mayoko reports that the 49ers are actually not in talks with the Jaguars for Jalen Ramsey. Um, really quickly, would you make that trade knowing it would probably cost you a first round pick? Yes. Yeah, that one's not, even, not even any hesitation. Yes. That one's tougher for me than, than Minka just because of the, co- the cost control of Minka and the fact that Minka plays, uh, can play safety, which, you know, with Chikowski Tart is something that we, we may need. Uh, yeah. But ultimately, I think Jalen Ramsey, you ultimately get a player of his caliber uh, and, and that absolutely changes your defense. And I think it would be awesome to do it, but I don't think the team will. Um, so other thing, holding, dude, how many holding penalties have been uh, called in the NFL? This year? It's absurd, man. So many damn holding penalties. I mean, you've got uh, Joe Staley who had a beautiful reach block on a Matt Breeder run that was called back. Um, and, and it's just, it seems like there's so much more holding in it. I, it really, it's bugging the hell out of me. I mean, you look between 2015 and 2018, teams have never accepted more than 59 holding penalties in a week. Then in late 2018, a memo from the NFL circulates around about calling more holding. Why? I don't know. And in 2019, it becomes a point of emphasis. And now in weeks one and two, you have over 70 accepted holding penalties each week. It's just, it's crazy. It's absurd how much more holding we're seeing. uh, And it really sucks for the game, I think. It absolutely does. And one of the one of the calls that was on Joe Staley was suck, man. It was the one of the worst calls that I've seen. He drove his defender out. The defender is basically three yards downfield running back runs up the hole up the seam or with the crease and he gets called for a flag and usually when there's a hold it's pretty obvious somebody reacts whether it's the offensive lineman or the defender nobody reacts ref throws a flag so uh, that drove me insane but there's actually something that we haven't really talked about somebody reported that the 49ers made an offer for Jalen Ramsey I don't know if you saw this or not but I don't know how much credibility this person has but he does have real in his name, so you know it's legit. Um, he so he said that the 49ers did offer a first round pick and additional picks for the Jack for Jalen Ramsey and Ben Albright, who is a reporter ish. He said that he confirmed that there were calls as well. So I think that there was interest based on that, but it obviously died down quickly. 
Yeah, you know what? You got you got to shoot your shot, right? If you if you throw it out there, I think much like Cleo Mack, they probably are waiting. Uh, if I'm the the Jaguars, I'm waiting to see if I get the best offer, and then I go back and say, all right, I'm going to take this, that, and the other. So hopefully they're in it. Hopefully they're making an offer because I think that could be pretty amazing. Last two quick notes here in the rundown: the 49ers have zero three and outs this year. That's right, zero. They're the only team through two weeks to have zero three and outs on offense. And finally. The 49ers are really, really pushing the pace this year in situation or in neutral situations when the score is within 10 in the first half or eight in the third quarter. The 49ers are third in time per snap, and that is, of course, per football outsiders. The Rams and the Cardinals are the only teams running plays faster. And wouldn't you know, defense isn't tired, still playing okay. So let's get to the preview of week three. The Steelers, the fighting Mason Rudolphs, because... Ultimately, we're going to spend the first couple of minutes talking about the Steelers' best player. Uh, and that's none other than Vance McDonald. Vance <laughs> McDonald, he had a breakout 2018. A breakout 2018 with 610 yards. He, he was in the bottom third in drop rate, uh, which is, you know, an improvement for Vance. I mean, how are the 49ers going to match up? I just don't know. What I would do is I would just have Witherspoon shadow Vance McDonald everywhere he goes, knowing that we have to take away the other team's best player, and that is not going to be the great Vance McDonald. I yeah, Vance McDonald. Uh, we hardly knew ye, and I. You know what? I'm going to add an impromptu rule to the game, just a throwback rule. If Vance McDonald oh. drops a pass, we all drink, uh, just because. Hey, we cheers. Old old time sake. We we cheers for hands like feet. So let's talk Mason Rudolph, though, uh, because Mason Rudolph is, of course, now the quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers. You've got Ben Roethlisberger, who's on injured reserve. And, and Mason Rudolph didn't play terribly uh, in his game action against the Seattle Seahawks. But if we take a trip down memory lane and, and look at Mason Rudolph in college, uh, he was, of course, at Oklahoma State. Uh, and he was pretty good. I mean, he was ranked fifth in the draft class with an adjusted completion percentage of 67.6% on intermediate throws. And he was very willing to attack the field vertically, especially up the sidelines. His average depth of target in college was 12.2 yards. That was sixth uh, of draft-eligible quarterbacks. And, and so overall, he was someone who liked to push the football down the field, had pretty good accuracy on deep and intermediate areas, and, and was someone who really fit. Uh, I could see why the Steelers made him their pick and why they traded up to pick him in the third round, because he could really fit what they wanted to do. Yeah, they want to throw the ball down the field and they have the receivers to do so. They have James Washington, which is his college teammate. So I wonder if there is going to be a little, you know, they're going to continue that rapport on Sunday against the 49ers. But I I mean, it's, we're talking about Mason Rudolph still. I don't think he was as good because as his college numbers indicate, just because of the offense that they were in. He played in the Big 12 and they don't play defense. It's actually illegal to play defense in the Big 12. That's, that that's is a, a lie. Penalty. That is a damn lie. I will not accept this Big 12 slander. <laughs> not here for this. <laughs> but, yeah, Mason Rudolph, we're going to find out real quick how um, the defense wants to attack him. Like you mentioned at the top, they don't blitz a lot. And one of the things that you want to do with a younger quarterback who hasn't played very much is get after him. You want to put pressure on him. So I wonder if we're going to see just different coverage looks like we saw against the Bengals. Or is just are they just going to do what they do and – roll the ball out, hey, we're better than you. Oh, no, absolutely. I think that you you actually throw a lot of coverage looks at him, and I think you don't. You, you'll probably see some targeted blitzing, but I, I don't think you make the reads easy for him. I think you give him a little bit a little bit of complexity, force him into a mistake, and get after him with four. 
because in, in the snaps that he had against Seattle, he really played a traditional game manager role. It was lots of underneath throws. When he put distance on the ball, his accuracy became a little erratic. Um, he didn't put the ball in harm's way or really complete any super imp- impressive throws. His most impressive throw was kind of a, a sidearm throw on a middle screen to Vance McDonald in the red zone. And, and he did have an interception on a two-point conversion, which won't show up on the stat sheet. But, um, you know, he does get skittish under pressure. He gets a little bit of the happy feet, and he just kind of throws the ball. And I think the, the 49ers could force him into a couple mistakes and end up on the positive end of uh, another turnover battle. I think there's no doubt about it that he is going to feel the pressure. And I think that a healthy Bosa is going to have a good game, just like he has the first two games. And just the coverage looks like Joe Woods. I think they're going to change it up. I think we're going to see some press looks and just rotating safeties, which has really thrown off the quarterbacks in the first two weeks. So continue to do what they've been doing and just assume that Mason Rudolph is going to come to you. Like he's going to make a bad throw. I think one of the other things to watch is going to be Mike McGlinchey. Uh, because Mike McGlinchey is going to have a pretty solid pass rushing test. You've got TJ Watt coming to town, and of course, he lines up on the offense's right-hand side. He's not going to switch all over the place. There's only seven snaps all year where he lined up on the left side when he was on the defensive line in all of 2018. So far this year, he's lined up just twice on the left side all year, so he's going to be matched up exclusively against Mike McGlinchey, and really, we're going to see whether or not Mike McGlinchey has really improved as a pass protector, because that was his thing that he really needed to improve. And so far, he's done a really, really good job. But TJ Watt's probably going to be one of the better pass rushers that he's going to face this year because he's starting off really, really well. He's got nine total pressures uh, and a pass rushing productivity that puts him in the top 20. Um, but th- those nine total pressures compare favorably to players like Nick Bosa, who's got 10 total pressures, uh, and Shaq Barrett, friend of the pod, only if uh, in desire alone. Uh, who's also got nine pressures. Uh, Shaq Barrett was someone we wanted as a free agent uh, over the course of, of the offseason as, as an option. And he's, of course, tearing it up uh, against the old Tampa Bay Bucks. I think he got, what, like three or four sacks? Is that what he ended up with? Oh, he, uh, he's, always, he's always been a great um, just third rusher. So that's not really surprising to hear that he's having success. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Just Watt versus McGlinchey. That's going to be a great matchup to watch because Watt is very, very good. And McGlinchey, he hasn't really been tested so far. So we're gonna get a we're getting a chance to see you know what he can do. He hasn't he hasn't been beat too too bad, but some of his some of the blocks that he does mess up or that he has like quote unquote blown blocks they look really bad. Like he just goes on the ground, but he's he's trending in the right direction as well. He's a good player. And what I what's gonna happen though this week is he's gonna be one on one more than usual because they are going to slide the protection towards school. So yeah, we're gonna see what uh what McGlinchey has. Yeah, I think uh, McGlinchey so far has only allowed one total pressure this year, so he's having a great start to to his uh, to his season, and we'll see what happens against T.J. Watt. But honestly, if I'm Keith Butler, the defensive coordinator for the Steelers, I'm, I'm moving T.J. Watt. I'm moving Easy. him over uh, school, and I know that he only plays traditionally on the offenses, right? But I think Keith Butler would be really, really dumb to not move T.J. Watt over uh, or overload that side and, and get some confusion with some communication because I think at the very least that's what Keith Butler is going to do is he's going to run stunts on the side away from T.J. Watt if T.J. Watt for some reason is immovable. And, and so I, I think you're going to see a lot of games. You're going to see a lot of stunts. And ultimately you're going to see the, the Steelers try to attack the left side of the 49ers offensive line. And if this game is close, um, that could be a really, really big deal. 
Yeah, when you said TJ Watt, my first reaction was uh, Stefan Tuitt on these stunts and just being able to loop around. And will school be able to recognize this? Is he going to chase the guy too far? Is he not going to see somebody looping around back to him? So that's something that I'd be worried about more so than McGlinchey. Absolutely. Now, you've got something else I thought was interesting when it comes to the Steeler defense, and that's really a tale of two blitz rates. Because whether or not they're going to blitz Jimmy Garoppolo heavily is going to be something I'll be watching. When, when they played Tom Brady, they only blitzed Tom Brady nine times out of 26 dropbacks. So basically, they're like, we're going to try to get there with four, but we're going to try to drop and play coverage. And, and that's, I mean, that's the kind of respect that Tom Brady commands. Now, when it got to Russell Wilson, they blitzed Russell Wilson 26 times on 41 dropbacks. That's an absurd amount of blitzing. I mean, at that point, they're blitzing him like close to 60% of the time. Hold on. Can you do the quick math? 26, 40, 62? That's right. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that's right because I'm just going to assume that Mr. Coppola of the calculator got it right. Um, yeah, and, and so far this year, Jimmy Garoppolo has only had six snaps under pressure. And under pressure, he's three for five for 71 yards. So I, I do think it's going to be interesting to see how Keith Butler plays against the 49ers, whether he goes heavy blitz or whether he thinks he can just try to play some games on the left side with rookie Justin School to try to get pressure on Garoppolo. And if they do get pressure on Garoppolo, I'd be interested to see if he's able to replicate some of the success that he had in 2017 under pressure because that's one of the areas where he was successful in 2017 was under pressure. Um, and, and we know that he can still move around uh, and work out of structure. So I'm curious if that's going to be something that Garoppolo is going to have to pull out of his bag in order to get a win against the Steelers. So I just looked it up. 26 divided by 41 is 63. So I should be fired because I was way off. Get out. I, <laughs> I also think that there's no doubt. First of all, if you blitz that much, you're basically playing Madden at this point. You're just engage a just cover zero coming after. And that is I'm, I don't think I've heard of something like that, a number that high. But I imagine it. Why wouldn't it be the same for Grappolo? Why wouldn't you come after him? Because there are plays where it looks like he is struggling. But a lot of those play, have his bad plays, his interceptions, his turnover worthy throws. They don't come under pressure, do they? No, they really haven't. And ultimately, I mean, he's only had six snaps under pressure. So, no, they, they haven't. Uh, so I think that the part of the reason that you're going to blitz Seattle as much is because their passing game is just is not as diverse. What happened over and over and over again in, in the game against Seattle was they would blitz Wilson and Wilson would basically throw the back shoulder to DK Metcalf. And he would come up with a couple, wouldn't come up with another couple. Um, and it probably cost them on a touchdown to the tight end near the red zone at the end of the game. But I don't know that that game is or I don't know that that passing offense is as diverse as Shanahan's. And so I'd probably think their blitzing is going to be much lower than it was against the Seahawks. But I could see more like a, you know, 20 to 22 percent blitz rate, which is a bit more in line with like the the on the upper side of average. So that's probably what where I'm going to think Keith Butler is going to come at the 49ers with is not quite that that kind of uh, super duper blitz heavy. But I don't think they're going to treat Garoppolo like Brady. Yeah, if you blitz Kyle Shanahan that much, he is going to eat you alive in the screen game. And one thing that we haven't seen much of, we definitely didn't see it against Cincinnati. I think we saw one against Tampa Bay was just screens to Kittle. So if you're going to blitz like that, I think we're going to see Kittle involved a lot more this week, more so than last week for sure. So that'll be interesting. It's something to keep an eye on for sure. All right, so what's your prediction this week, Kyle? Because the line has moved drastically all the way oh. from what was it? It was almost like a pick em, right? And it's moved to now the Niners minus seven. Yeah, I think it was like minus one or minus two before Big Ben got hurt. And then 
naturally when you lose a quarterback, especially a good one, well, quote unquote good, um, yeah, the, the line's going to move and it's going to move a lot. So that's not surprising to hear that the 49ers are a touchdown favorite. I think they're going to win. I think that this is going to be a, another defensive, dominant defensive performance where they're able to get after Mason Rudolph. He's going to put the ball in harm's way. I, I can see that there being some some big plays because the Steelers do have some talented players. I mean, Juju's very good, and they have um, Deontay Johnson, I think, who could give K1 Williams some problems, actually. But I think that ultimately the 49ers are able to just continue continue rolling. I think they're able to win 24-13. to 13. Cover. Yeah, so I think that they cover as well. The over-under on this game is 44. I do think it likely hits the over. Um, so I'm going to go with it. And I always put a field goal in there because, hey, you pay your kicker. Might as well put a field goal in the projection, right? <laughs> um, do the Niners score more than 30 points again? You know what? I think they do. I think they get up to wow. 31 points. Uh, and I think the Steelers uh, are middling near the 20, it's like 17 or 24 area. Let's go optimist, man. I'm, I'm riding that week too high. Let's go 3-0 and into the bye. Um, and let's get rested and ready to go into the the stretch of the season where it's going to be a lot of fighting and, and we'll see what the hell happens but man having the opportunity to go 3 and 0 into the bye is not something uh, I thought is not a place I thought the Niners would be at and it sounds like things are breaking their way where they can get the top end of their win project- projection it's still early defense is not stable so you know we can still see some movement here but I think things are really coming up uh, that are coming up positively for the 49ers early in the season Yeah, you're supposed to win the games you're supposed to. That's how good teams go to the playoffs. Look at the Patriots, man. They're in the AFC what? They're in the AFC East. It's not like the Patriots are playing starting quarterbacks or, you know, Patrick Mahomes every week. This week they have the Jets. And win is a win. When we get to December, when we get to January, hopefully, when the 49ers are still playing, nobody's going to care that they were 3-0 because they beat the Steelers without big men. No, that doesn't matter. Just beat who you're supposed to be and then cover that's the side of a good team baby all right kyle well thanks again for joining us this week on the better rivals podcast kyle where can they follow you on the twitters you can follow me on the twitters at kp underscore show you can always follow me at better rivals thanks again for tuning in happy win wednesday or thursday or friday and as always go niners